Hello, and welcome to another episode of Interactions, a podcast about law and religion and how they interact in the world around us. Today, we're exploring a recent wave of anti-transgender legislation passed in Mississippi, Arkansas, and Tennessee. By now, this legislation may sound very familiar to you. It includes laws that bar transgender and gender non-conforming individuals from competing in girls' and women's sports. It also includes laws that criminalize certain forms of gender-affirming medical care for minors seeking gender transition. In fact, the United States has already seen more explicitly anti-trans legislation proposed in 2021 than in any year prior. While conservatives have long resisted the expansion of LGBTQ rights in general, activists and politicians have now begun to target their efforts on the issue of transgender rights in particular. According to Dan Miller, a professor of religion and social thought at Landmark College, these efforts have a lot to do with religion. More precisely, these laws have a lot to do with Christian nationalism. All of this and more on today's episode of Interactions. I'm Janet Metzger, and this is Christian Nationalism and Recent Anti-Trans State Laws by Dan Miller. Mississippi, Arkansas, and Tennessee have recently passed laws targeting transgender and gender nonconforming girls and young women, barring them from participating in girls' and women's competitive sports. Arkansas also recently passed a law criminalizing gender-affirming medical care to transgender youth, such as prescribing hormone blockers, hormone replacement therapies, and various gender-confirming surgeries. States like Alabama are not far behind. While the GOP and many social conservatives have long been focused on countering the expansion of LGBTQ rights, in recent years they have focused their efforts on transgender individuals in particular. The political and social conservatism underlying these efforts is clear, but the extreme focus on the transgender community demands further explanation. Here's why. Anti-trans efforts, such as the so-called bathroom bills, have been justified on the grounds that they protect vulnerable populations like children, girls, and young women. But not only does this rationale crumble under any critical examination, but these efforts actually pose a grave threat to the health and safety of another vulnerable population, transgender minors. Despite these oversights, it appears that a majority of the people who support these anti-transgender legislative efforts nevertheless feel that their rationales are true. This point is crucial. If we are going to make sense of these legislative efforts, then we need to stop thinking about them as a rational expression of belief. Instead, we need to see them in a way so that the visceral and embodied nature of anti-trans sentiment becomes clear. 
Ultimately, these legislative efforts have to do with a way of perceiving society, not a way of thinking about it. And this perception is an expression of Christian nationalism. 2021 has seen a record number of anti-trans legislative efforts, over 80 to date. The two primary targets of this legislation are transgender individuals wanting to compete in girls' and women's sports, and transgender minors seeking medical care for gender transition. Those in support of this legislation appeal to public safety, specifically the protection of minors and young female athletes. Mississippi Governor Tate Reeves, who signed the Mississippi Fairness Act into law in March, tweeted a few days prior to signing that the law would protect young girls from being forced to compete with biological males for athletic opportunities. Supporters of similar laws in other states gave basically the same rationale. Governor Bill Lee of Tennessee tweeted that he signed his state's bill to preserve women's athletics and ensure fair competition. He went on to add that this legislation responds to damaging federal policies that stand in opposition to the years of progress made under Title IX. Those who support the criminalization of medical services that aid in the transition of transgender minors make similar arguments about children's safety. They claim that these laws would protect minors from undergoing medical changes they may regret as adults. Case in point, Arkansas recently passed the Save Adolescents from Experimentation, or SAFE Act, and the Alabama legislation making its way through the legislature is called the Vulnerable Child Compassion and Protection Act. As of March 2021, Alabama and Arkansas are only two of the 20 states that have introduced this kind of legislation. Other states are close behind. The cruelty of the reasoning behind anti-trans legislation is that the laws don't serve the purposes they claim to, but instead actively harm the transgender community. This can be seen in how supporters of anti-trans legislation appeal to so-called biological gender. The Mississippi Fairness Act, for example, requires public high schools and higher education institutions to designate athletic teams or sports according to biological sex. Tennessee's new law requires students who would participate in middle or high school sports to have their gender be determined by the student's sex at the time of the student's birth, as indicated on the student's original birth certificate. Tennessee also takes it one step further. The law requires that if a birth certificate does not appear to be the student's original birth certificate or does not indicate the student's sex at birth, the student must provide other evidence to indicate the student's sex. These appeals to sex at birth and biological sex presuppose what Talia May Betcher has described as the natural attitude toward sex and gender, an attitude according to which there are two naturally, mutually exclusive, exhaustive, and invariant sexes, and membership within a sex is determined by genitalia. 
Within this perspective, sex determines gender, so that gender is strictly binary in nature. But the gender binary that these laws appeal to fails to hold up to scrutiny. This view is not just decades out of date. It also ignores both empirical and theoretical evidence against the existence of biological sex, its coincidence or determination of gender identity, and the resulting concept of biological gender. The laws also fail to protect vulnerable populations as they promised. Sponsors of bills banning transgender individuals from girls' and women's sports are unable to cite instances where their participation has created any real difficulties, let alone dangers. And the argument that criminalizing developmentally appropriate gender-confirming medical treatments for transgender minors is actually some kind of protective measure completely overlooks the fact that medical transition for minors involves a measured, careful, and deliberative process. The anti-trans legislation also flies in the face of the increasingly well-established opinions of medical and mental health experts. While the lack of factual bases for these legislative efforts is significant, what renders them positively perverse is that they actively endanger members of the transgender community. Preventing transgender youth from accessing necessary gender-affirming medical treatments leads to increased suicidality and other mental health issues. Full participation in the social life and activities of those who share their experienced gender is a crucial component of social transition, so much so that laws that bar transgender individuals from participating in girls' and women's sports compound all the risks confronting transgender youth who are not socially affirmed in their experienced identity, such as bullying, stigma, and social ostracism. Rather than protecting youth, these legislative measures place them at a much greater risk. Given the weakness of their arguments, the way that these anti-trans legislative efforts have continued to be enthusiastically supported can be explained from multiple angles, none of which are mutually exclusive. The simplest explanation, of course, is that rationales appealing to the protection of vulnerable populations, like girls and young women, are just a smokescreen masking obvious anti-trans sentiment. Political opportunism can also be said to play a role. Prior legislative efforts have targeted queer sexualities, such as efforts to ban same-sex marriage. These efforts focused very little on gender identity, but such opposition is no longer the winning political strategy it once was. Almost three-quarters of the American public now affirm the legality of same-sex relationships. Two-thirds approve of same-sex marriage, a reverse image of the widespread opposition only 25 years ago. In the decade from 2004 to 2014 alone, public support for same-sex marriage increased by 22%. In many ways, the 2015 Supreme Court Obergefell v. Hodges decision marked a decisive loss in cultural conservatives' anti-gay rights culture wars.
Importantly, however, gender identity and gender nonconformity have not yet garnered the same degree of popular awareness or acceptance as sexual orientation. The GOP and cultural conservatives can thus count on greater support for their opposition to the transgender community than that of the gay community. While such explanations are certainly not incorrect and shed significant light on support for anti-trans legislation, they still don't take us far enough. While anti-trans animus obviously lies at the heart of these efforts, such explanations don't address the source of that animus itself, thus missing the visceral nature of the enthusiasm for these measures. These explanations also fail to account for the maddening ineffectiveness of offering counter-evidence against anti-trans sentiment. The pervasiveness of the ongoing support for anti-trans legislation reflects the fact that a majority of those who support these legislative efforts feel that these rationales are true, regardless of any and all evidence to the contrary. Ultimately, it is ineffective to understand supporters of anti-trans legislation as believing their rationales to be true. This is because the visceral opposition to transgender youth is not primarily a matter of belief. Without a doubt, when you ask someone about their support for anti-trans legislation, even in the face of factually compelling counter-evidence, they might respond with an answer that is stated in terms of belief. Answers like, because I believe that there are only two genders, or because I believe that gender is biologically determined, or because I believe that we have to protect children from harmful medical interventions, and on and on. And the because of their responses gives the impression that these people really do indeed express belief as the cause of their support. Understanding anti-trans animus this way might be intuitive, but it is also misleading. These beliefs do not represent reasons and explanations for the support of such legislation. Instead, these beliefs represent an after-the-fact justification or rationalization for preferences whose real driving force lies elsewhere. Seen this way, the stubborn persistence of anti-trans support despite compelling counter-evidence becomes clear. Because such support is not fundamentally about belief, rational or factual counter-arguments or counter-evidence are not effective in displacing it. If belief is not a convincing explanation for the support of these legislative efforts, then what is? Find out right after the break. Hi, Interactions listeners. This is Justin Latterell at the Center for the Study of Law and Religion. If you like this episode and want to learn more about the interactions of law and religion around the world, Check out the link to our book brochure in the podcast description. There you'll find over 40 new titles like God and the Illegal Alien by Robert Heimberger and Michael Perry's new book on human rights, democracy, and constitutionalism. 
Each title includes a short description and a link to buy the book online. Thanks for listening to Interactions. Belief is not a convincing explanation for the support of anti-trans legislation. In the case of this focused opposition to transgender youth, the answer lies in understanding Christian nationalism and appreciating the unique degree to which transgender individuals call into question the social order within it. It's likely that most people had never heard of Christian nationalism until recently. Christian nationalism is an expression of populist nationalism that takes shape in the perception that only certain kinds of people living in the U.S. are real Americans. It's a comprehensive cultural framework, both pervasive and complex, involving much more than what most of us typically think of when we think of a religious identity. Being politically conservative is the strongest predictor of someone identifying with Christian nationalism. In fact, a strong majority of political conservatives, including those who affiliate with the GOP, identify as Christian nationalists. Christian nationalists imagine that not all residents of the U.S. and not even all citizens born in the U.S. are real Americans. While all U.S. citizens might possess a nominal, shared civic identity and therefore might be legally entitled to basic rights and a level of political recognition, to the Christian nationalist, real Americans are a much more exclusive subset of people within the broader U.S. population. And while Christian nationalism might strike many as a fringe movement, Social scientists have demonstrated that a majority of Americans either actively support or are at least sympathetic to Christian nationalism. Like all nationalist identities, Christian nationalism is a complex social formation. It involves much more than the typical markers of Christian religious identity, such as someone who accepts traditionally orthodox Christian beliefs, frequently attends church services, reads their Bible, and prays. Christian nationalist identification may involve these traditional measures of Christian identity, but it is also intertwined with other axes of identity, including race, gender, sexuality, and political orientation. Within the Christian nationalist experience, these dimensions of identity come together in a deeply felt sense of just who the real Americans are. Different studies of American national identity reveal a notably uniform and very narrow idealized image of the prototypical real American as imaged within Christian nationalism. This American is white, cisgender, heterosexual, Protestant, English-speaking, U.S.-born, of Northern European descent, affirmative of the patriarchy, if not male, and, it almost goes without saying, politically and socially conservative. The more someone is perceived to embody this prototype, 
the greater the degree to which they can be recognized as real or authentic Americans. The American identity of those who are not perceived to embody this prototype is suspect or even denied altogether. Once we begin to understand Christian nationalism as a totalizing experiential framework, it becomes clearer why Christian nationalism and anti-trans sentiment cannot be reduced to an expression of belief. For example, if most Christian nationalists were simply asked, does someone have to be white to be an American, they would almost certainly say no. They might even be sincere in doing so. Similarly, it's likely that most Christian nationalists don't consciously believe that only those who fit the profile of the prototypical real American are in fact the only real Americans. But they nevertheless viscerally feel this to be true. To reiterate, Christian nationalism is not primarily an expression of thoughts or beliefs about American identity. Instead, it expresses a perception of American identity, a visceral, felt sense of authentic American belonging. It operates on what William Connolly calls the visceral register, a register of pre-conscious modes of intensity and thought-imbued feelings. It is what Brian Masumi refers to as a thinking feeling, that is not a mode of explicit rationality or belief, but an immediate understanding that is already operating by the time we get to any articulation of a consciously held belief. At the end of the day, the rationales behind anti-transgender legislation are actually an after-the-fact rationalization for legislative support. The rationales actually originate in a distinctive perception of social reality, one that is shaped by Christian nationalist identity. Identity is linked to embodiment. Identity is never abstract, but rather visceral, lived out, and experienced in concrete, real-world contexts. The identity of the Christian nationalist takes shape around the idealized prototype of the real American. In everyday life, the Christian nationalist lens uses the prototype of the real American to determine the degree to which real flesh-and-blood bodies correspond to that ideal. This shows how identity is perceptual in nature. Identity is fundamentally a matter of perceiving which bodies do or do not match the idealized real American prototype. A crucial outcome of this perception is a sense of proper social order, a sense that can also be expressed in terms of embodiment. For thousands of years, Western social, political, and religious thinkers have understood society itself to be a kind of body like when we say the body politic. This imagined social body has functioned to ground a sense of proper social order. A proper social body is a body with the right structure or shape, a body with members in their proper places playing their properly assigned roles. 
The social body's order has consistently been articulated in hierarchical terms. Within Christian nationalist experience, the properly ordered social body mirrors the body of the prototypical real American, so that the proper social order is one in which real Americans hold positions of social and political authority, while all those not perceived as embodying that ideal are subordinate or even totally non-existent. Transgender embodiment uniquely threatens Christian nationalists' sense of properly embodied social order and is therefore perceived as a distinctive threat. Transgender bodies have long been marginalized because they have no place within the fixed gender binary that orients Christian nationalism, though, to be sure, transgender discrimination is certainly not limited to Christian nationalism. The bodies of those identifying as non-binary or gender-fluid are particularly unnatural to the Christian nationalist, and cannot be assimilated into the social body at all. Disruption of the gender binary, especially in the case of transgender youth, similarly disrupts the white, Christian, heteronormative, and patriarchal nuclear family around which the Christian nationalist social body takes shape. It's in the bodies of transgender youth in particular that Christian nationalists perceive a unique threat to the social body as they imagine it. Understood within this frame, support for anti-trans legislation is an effort to entirely excise transgender bodies from the social body itself. This support is an expression of visceral opposition to the very existence of transgender bodies. It's at this point where we can register the full significance of proponents' insistence on the naturalness of a gender binary, on the biological basis for normal gender expressions, on the fundamental unnaturalness of appropriate medical transition for transgender youth. The visceral nature of this opposition is the source of its resistance to any sort of factual counter-evidence. The resistance lies in the perception within the Christian nationalist social imaginary that trans youth simply ought not to be. The threat that trans youth pose to the Christian nationalist social order is simply too great to be registered as anything other than an existential threat. But transgender embodiment also threatens the social body imagined by Christian nationalists on an even more fundamental level. While Christian nationalists viscerally resist transgender embodiment because they perceive it to be an unnatural departure from so-called normal embodiment, Transgender embodiment actually reveals the deeper truth that there is no normative body, whether flesh and blood, or social. As Susan Stryker powerfully writes, I, who have dwelt in a form unmatched with my desire, I, whose flesh has become an assemblage of incongruous anatomical parts, I, who achieve the similitude of a natural body only through an unnatural process, I offer you this warning. The nature you bedevil me with is a lie. 
It is a fabrication that cloaks the groundlessness of the privilege you seek to maintain for yourself at my expense. Transgender embodiment reveals the truth that the natural embodiment to which Christian nationalists appeal is itself a lie. It reveals that, as Niall Richardson suggests, there is no fixed, inherent, or essential body. Far from representing a transgression of natural embodiment, as Christian nationalists imagine, forms of transgender embodiment serve as examples, in Nikki Sullivan's words, of the many ambiguous and complex ways in which bodies are continually changed and changing, bringing to light the fact that all bodies are unnatural, created, formed, and transformed in and through modificatory processes and procedures of one sort or another. To encounter transgender bodies is to realize the constructedness of the natural order itself. Ultimately, transgender bodies reveal the fundamental queerness of all bodies, the fact that all bodies are defined by shifting and fluid shapes and contours, the fact that bodies have no normal or proper shape. This is the revelation that Christian nationalists are faced with when they encounter such bodies. These bodies reveal that the social body, as imagined within Christian nationalism, is itself an unnatural denial of the social body's inherent queerness. The social body aims to preserve the privilege of the few at the expense of the many. Recognizing the fluidity of the social body, on the other hand, opens up the possibility for an alternative social and political practice. It opens up the possibility not only of affirming transgender youth, but of enacting a political practice oriented around the recognition and embrace of all the novel identities taking shape within the social body, demanding their place within it, and effectively recreating it in the process. Such practices, which I term queer democracy, take shape not only in the opposition to Christian nationalism, but in the embrace of all those on whose marginalization the imposition of the proper social body depends. To be sure, a queer social body is, from the Christian nationalist perspective, grotesque or monstrous, fluid and shifting in its contours and constitution. From within any meaningfully democratic perspective, however, it becomes undeniable that such monstrosity is beautiful. That was Christian Nationalism and Recent Anti-Trans State Laws by Dan Miller. You can find the full article on Canopy Forum by following the link in the episode description. Canopy Forum and the Interactions podcast are distributed by the Center for the Study of Law and Religion at Emory University. Anna Knudsen is the producer of Interactions, and I am your narrator, Janet Metzger. You can follow Canopy Forum on Twitter or Facebook and subscribe to Interactions on your favorite podcast platform. Thank you for listening.